So often the moms assume the role of supporting the family's health and mental health. But dads have a critical role to play. And how do you encourage your partner to step into that role? When a man is unsure of how to talk about emotions with his children, what should he say? What if he doesn't want to talk about them with anyone? In this episode, we get raw and deep, reflecting on the men most dear to us. How do we raise boys that have the permission and the know-how to connect with others? And how do we help them now become the available and emotionally literate dads of tomorrow? Welcome to Fluster Clucks with Lynn Lyons, where we talk about worry and other big feelings in parenting. I'm your co-host, Robin. I'm Lynn's sister-in-law, and I'm here to ask your questions. And I'm Lynn Lyons. I'm an anxiety expert, speaker, mom, and author, and I've been a therapist for over 30 years. Parenting can be a fluster clucks, and I'm here to help you find your way. Lynn, I think we should talk about fathers today, because... We have done the podcast now for just over a year, and we have a really wonderful community of listeners who are active in our Facebook group. And I've also seen you speak whenever you have spoken at the schools in my own area in Boston. And the audiences are always overwhelmingly women. Mm -hmm. But I do know that obviously in private practice, you see both parents, if it's a two-parent household, more frequently. And so you have an opportunity to engage with fathers on the family's mental health. How do you interpret the roles of the mother and the father and family health? And what do you wish was different? Hmm. Such a good question. And you're exactly right. And, and, and also, it's interesting. If I think about who I'm talking to, it is certainly, I'm sure, that the podcast listeners the majority of them are women. When I go to schools, the parents, the majority of the audience, women. When I'm talking to school personnel, when I'm talking to teachers, the vast majority, women. And even when I'm doing training for clinicians, the vast majority are women. I have several consultation groups that I do, both for school-based consultations and also clinical consultations. If I think about it, of all the people in those groups right now offhand, three men. Wow. And clinical consultation groups that I do, no men, all women. Now, so we think about that, right? And we think about this field as being really dominated by women. Your mentors, a lot of your mentors and collaborators are men, though. Yeah. Yeah. I know. It's interesting, isn't it? A lot of the sort of the gurus in the field and the guys up in the field are guys, which is interesting. There's a lot of women too, but you know, my mentors are men and my pals and my co-author men. So it is interesting, but when I'm speaking and when people are listening, it really is very, very dominated by women. So, and again, this becomes an issue for me when I'm in my practice because I really want and I think really need dads to be involved in this. And I think it's hard for them for a variety of reasons, which a lot of them actually are not of their doing. So I think it is important that we talk about fathers because here's the message that I want dads to have. Your kids need you and your partners need you. And we just have to make some more room for your voice and your boys need you, your girls need you. 
it's so, so important that the, that the dad's voices be a part of this mental health journey. And I think oftentimes it's not, to be honest. Let's talk about why you think that is. You know, and actually there was just an article in the New York Times probably about a month ago, maybe, about moms taking on the role of the worrier in the family. Did you see that? We can post the link to that. I think that, you know, we like to think that we're equal in our partnerships. And we're talking about heterosexual couples here, that there's a mom and a dad. But I think that these dynamics can show up in all sorts of different couples. In this article in the New York Times, they talked about women really taking on the role as the worrier in the family. And I think that that is a very consistent and predictable pattern. I think there's a lot of reasons for it. We like to think that the roles of men and women in relationships that were on equal footing, I don't think that that's actually very true in a lot of ways, and particularly in terms of the emotional work that's done. I think people still fall into their roles. And the reason that it's not changing as quickly as we like to imagine that it's changing is because remember, this is generational. So if we've got a generation of dads right now that are working very hard to interrupt patterns, those dads are are trying to undo a lot of the work that has been done societally, culturally, of how they parent and whether or not they were allowed into that role, what that meant for them to be dads and how they were taught to manage their own emotions. I think it's very fraught with dads and sons in terms of emotional management. I think it's really hard for dads to talk to their sons and their daughters too, but more so with their sons about anxiety, about depression. I think that dads culturally are given permission to talk to their sons about anger, to talk to their sons about aggression, to talk to their sons about how to be a good loser, to talk to their sons in the context of competition and aggression, sportsmanship. Right. Sportsmanship is the key framework of emotional management. And if it doesn't fit into that, then there's no plan that they're following of those conversations. Right. I think we're in a a period of transition in which dads are really thinking about this and wanting to do this differently, but there's just not a lot of modeling in our culture yet for that to happen. So I think they feel a little like this isn't my bailiwick. This isn't where I should be involved. I think women sort of take on that role. And, you know, as we talked about in the a few episodes ago about the anxious parent and the non-anxious parent, that oftentimes one parent will step in and say, you know, I got this and you don't understand and let me handle it. And I think dads do get sort of pushed out of it. I think oftentimes it's not seen as manly, it's not seen as masculine to talk to your kids, particularly your son, about sadness, about worry, about being afraid. And I think that dads really need a lot of permission and a lot of coaching to be able to step in and to do that. They want to do it. I I know they want to do it. They just don't know how to do it. And they're taught to smush things down. They're taught to suppress They're taught to put things in the context with their sons of winning and losing too often. Not a lot of relationship coaching. Going back to like the first of your answers, we did an episode recently on the anxious parent. And if it's two anxious parents, one anxious parent, and those dynamics are sort of beyond 
gender and sex because mm-hmm. in same sex couples, there's going to be the one parent mm-hmm. who's going to take on, no, I'm the worrier because I care more or mm-hmm. I'm the worrier because you're too lax. And so they take on those different roles. So that plays out with two dads as well. Mm-hmm. But you even talked about in that episode that often the dad can be the more anxious parent. So by no means is that unusual for you to see in mm-hmm. your private practice. Mm-hmm. But maybe there is a, maybe it's sometimes not as obvious to find because when I think of anxious men in my own life experience, I think a lot of men, when they have anxiety, it manifests in a very masculine controlling way. Mm-hmm. In a way that's that I think that is more culturally accepted, where anxiety's hiding behind of a man in control and a man who's going to decide this. It's my way or the highway and all of that. And we just say, oh, that's a stern patriarch. But you, right. you know otherwise. Well, because remember that if we talk about some of the the ways that anxious parents parent, one of the fast tracks into anxiety for kids is parental control. And I think I probably have mentioned this in past episodes, but it bears repeating now. When we look at parental control and we look at rigidity, because anxiety loves rigidity, those are big symptoms of anxiety. There's that thing that I talked about called parental experiential avoidance, which means that a parent has a really difficult time with their own distress or with their child's distress. If you've got an anxious dad, if you've got an anxious man, and all of the cultural messages are don't show your vulnerability and there's not a lot of room for talking about what you're afraid of and what you're worried of, you step into that role of control and that role of rigidity. That's what anxiety wants. And that's such a good observation by you, Robin, that when we see these anxious dads, they tend to be more controlling. Not that anxious moms can't be controlling too, but dads tend to be more controlling. And that is absolutely accepted that they can be controlling. And we go, oh God, what a control freak that guy is. And I do see that a lot. And I'll say to dads, so what's behind the control? Tell me about the fear. Tell me about the fear. They sort of look at me like, what do do you mean? I can hear the way you're talking about this is that your desire to control is about fear. Oftentimes, your desire to make sure that your son is not vulnerable, that you're arming your son for battle. So you start to see that your child is a worrier. You start to see that you have a little child that's more, more shy or more introverted or more hesitant. And you start to worry that that child, particularly if it's a son, is going to be more vulnerable. And you want to arm them for battle and you want to arm you for battle. And that's where that control comes from. And then, boy, we really push down the sadness or the worry or the fear because what's acceptable is the rigidity, the control, and the aggression oftentimes. When you and I started the podcast and I start talking to other friends about the topic of anxiety, I think people culturally have a have a very narrow view of how it plays out. Mm-hmm. And they think of someone who is maybe like fretting or you mm-hmm. probably know the words, but I, you know, they think of someone who's like the the stereotypical neurotic, mm-hmm. et cetera. And of course, if if people really had only that simplistic understanding of what anxiety is, they're missing many more ways that it is controlling our decision-making and our actions. Well, it's very much associated with weakness. 
worry, when we talk about worry and neuroticism, the word hysteria, those are all very female traits that we put on to females. They're not female traits, but we put those, we, we use those words in a very feminine context. And when you're trying to have dads talk about this and dads reveal what's going on inside of them, they don't even have a language for that. And they, they haven't been taught how to talk about that. They haven't been taught how to show their kids it's okay to be anxious about something or it's okay to be fearful or even it's okay to be sad. It's really different now. I mean, certainly the young dads that, that I work with and that I talk to, and by young, I mean, you know, like younger than me, they're really trying to shift out of this mode of sort of to be masculine means that you need to be disconnected, that you need to be shut down and that you need to make sure that your kids are tough. That's what we really need to invite dads into a, a different kind of conversation about the mental health of their kids. When you see dads effectively doing this, or mm -hmm. at least really on a good path, what do you think they're doing right? And how do you think they're doing? Well, so if I think about the dads doing it right, and I can think about situations in which I've, I've had that happen in my office, what they're doing actually is they're being very honest with their children and they're making lots of room for all the different ways that they can feel about things. They're normalizing things like feeling afraid of something or feeling worried about something or feeling sad about something. And the wonderful thing, and I can think of these dads are popping into my head now, they sit here in my office and they say to their anxious teenager, you know, I get exactly what you're feeling because when I was your age, I felt the same exact way. And this is what I wish somebody had said to me. Or they say, you know what? This is what I did because you know me now. I, I can handle things as I've gotten older and it's a process. And these are the things that I figured out, but I figured them out on my own. Or sometimes I figured them out with the help of such and such. But these are the things I want you to know that nobody said to me. So as your dad, the, this is what I want to tell you. And it, it is really, as I think about it, I can you know, start to feel emotional about it because these dads are saying, I understand what you need because I can relate to it and I am going to give it to you. And I'll tell you, it is powerful. And it's not that moms don't do this, of course. But when a father sits there and reveals to his child that he gets what they're feeling, particularly it's a father talking to a son, it, it is a powerful and shifting experience. Yeah. I have this one family. I mean, I have several families, but I have this one family where the teenager is really socially anxious and the dad has been really open and really comforting and really encouraging that this teenager can change out of these patterns because he changed out of these patterns. And for this teenager to sit there and hear their dad talk about that is just, it's such a powerful and connecting experience. Do you think seeing a therapist or a psychiatrist would be helpful, but you don't have the time to actually find one? And then like, when do you have time to meet with them? Try Talkspace. By doing everything online, Talkspace has made getting the help you want easy, accessible, and affordable. 
It's in network with most major insurers. There's no need to commute to appointments. You won't miss time at work or have to line up childcare in order to attend sessions. It's mental health care made easy. Talkspace lets you send messages to your therapist so you don't have to wait for your next session. Therapy can help you shift your perspective and find tools to cope in difficult times. Talkspace is the number one online therapy platform with licensed therapists in over 40 specialties, including anxiety, depression, substance abuse, relationship issues, and much more. As a listener of this podcast, you'll get $80 off your first month with Talkspace when you go to Talkspace.com slash Fluster. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com slash Fluster to get $80 off your first month. That's Talkspace.com slash Fluster. Hey, so the other day I had to change my car insurance. And guess what? I bought new car insurance And they sent me a check, right? So that you could buy something and get money back at the same time doesn't happen very often. And it's pretty darn fun. That's why you got to check out Ibotta. Ibotta is a free app that gives you the most cash back every time you shop on hundreds of items from groceries to beauty supplies to toys. You can make sure you're beating inflation no matter what you're purchasing. So the average Ibotta user earns $256 a year. That's actually more than I got back on my car insurance, I'll tell you. That could cover the cost of an entire shopping trip. Other apps give you points that don't amount to too much. With Ibotta, just add your offers in the app, upload your receipt, and you get real cash that you can cash out to your bank account, PayPal, or gift cards. So join the 50 million users, earn cash back, Every time you shop, over 2,700 brands, everybody, retailers, including Lowe's, Sephora, Best Buy. Right now, Ibotta is offering our listeners $5 just for trying Ibotta by using the code FLUSTER when you register. Just go to the App Store or Google Play Store and download the free Ibotta app to start earning cash back and use the code FLUSTER. That's I-B-O. TTA and use the code Fluster. You know, I'm thinking of famous fathers right now. You and I had both really enjoyed that series with Barack Obama and Bruce Springsteen where they talk about fatherhood and they talk about their own fathers. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I think about when two people that are so well known, Bruce Springsteen and Barack Obama, talk about their vulnerability in being a father They were very different, weren't they? Mm -hmm. Bruce Springsteen sort of has done a lot of personal work, but he is going all in of showing his vulnerability to his kids in a way that he could express, at least in that podcast. Mm -hmm. He was talking about things that he had done wrong, where he had failed with the purpose of connection. Mm -hmm. I felt like what he was saying was pretty intense, not remarkable, but intense, right? Mm -hmm. Not not something that a lot of dads have had that conversation Mm -hmm. that he has. Mm -hmm. And his son was like eight at the time. Yeah. So I'm picturing that scene. It's really worth listening to the podcast. In contrast, Barack Obama talks about how easy it is for him to feel the love of a father and how being a father felt so natural to him and how he tapped into that unconditional love Mm -hmm. that he felt very easily. But the question is, and of course, no one would know this, and I'm not trying to project, but like, how do you handle your own weaknesses with your kids is sort of this thing that you're talking about. 
how do you show the honesty and the vulnerability if it was never shown to you? How do you do that? Well, the thing that I was struck by, actually, in listening to the two of them talk about it, was that Bruce Springsteen was really talking about not only the unconditional love that he felt for his kids, but how you then put that into practice. And for him, he really had to recognize that it was about showing up, and it was about communicating, and it was about spending time. You know, he talked about being on the road and being away and and that kind of stuff. And I think w- when I'm listening to Obama talk about it, and I do think Obama's much more guarded in that podcast for obvious reasons, but I think that <laughs> when he talks about it, and I've actually heard Michelle talk a lot about the problems in their marriage, she had to hold his feet to the fire. It seemed to me that it was the women in the family, right? Michelle, and he's got two daughters, and he's got his his mother-in-law was living, saying, this is what you need to do, dude, because you are not getting it. Barack felt like the unconditional love was enough, and Michelle was like, uh-uh. Yeah, what I thought was so exceptional about what Bruce Springsteen was saying was that he was recognizing how he showed up in a way that that affected everything that he did. Mm-hmm. If his true goal was connection and showing up and being present for his kids, mm-hmm. he took that incredibly seriously in terms of how it integrated in with his work life mm-hmm. down to his daily life, his sleeping patterns, all of those things. And um, I do think it was remarkable. He's done a lot of work, you can tell. And I've heard him interviewed on other podcasts and he went through some pretty significant periods of depression. I think you know, Barack has done less work. <laughs> He's been a little busy. <laughs> He's been right. a little busy. Right. Yeah. So what, what I liked about that podcast is, and I'll bring up another favorite man of yeah. ours, is, you know, like, let's talk about Mr. Rogers. Yeah. So, but this is complicated because mm-hmm. as much as we adore Mr. Rogers... He's not a regular guy. I, I I know he was a regular guy, but his image that he portrayed on TV to children about complete emotional authenticity, mm-hmm. there wasn't a lot that was human-like about that. Right. Well, and even his son said at one point, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to be the son of Mr. Rogers because Mr. Rogers was everybody's father. And I wanted him to be my father. You know, there's that was going on there too. When a man is so emotionally, authentically present, mm-hmm. it's unusual. Yeah. And don't you think that if we look back at Mr. Rogers, if you were to ask dads back then about Mr. Rogers, what do you think they would have said? Right. No, one, no little boy grew up saying, I wanted to be Mr. Rogers. Right. Right. But if the shit hit the fan... They would want Mr. Rogers by their side. Yeah. So it's so it's tricky. Yep. It is tricky. And it is interesting too. So think of this is, you know, sort of another sort of famous father who wasn't really a real father. He was a T, but we think about TV fathers and how they are portrayed. And I heard this really interesting discussion about uh, the Andy Griffith show the character of Andy Taylor as a single father. See, that was a trope during that period of time. Remember, there was a lot of widowed fathers, a lot of single fathers, and how that character taught Opie things that weren't discussed much at all on television. And in terms of him showing sort of fatherhood and vulnerability and emotional connection, pretty interesting. It's a pretty interesting podcast. And of course, you know, the reality of it was is that if you talk to Andy Griffith 
in real life, he was a horrible father. He had an alcohol problem. He was completely distant from his kids. There's so much messaging about how do we help dads? How do we give dads permission to connect with their kids, particularly around these very vulnerable emotions like sadness and fear and worry? And how much it's portrayed that a good dad is the strong dad. The good dad is the dad that handles all the problems. The good dad is the dad that steps in and creates a strong son. And I think that that putting that coating on it really doesn't allow dads to feel comfortable stepping into the conversations that that I so want them to step into. And as I said in my office, when I see them step in, it is just transformative. It's transformative. Have you ever wished you could work with Lynn to talk about your family? Here's your chance. We're excited to announce the second Fluster Clucks Parenting Retreat at Canyon Ranch in the Berkshires. This two-night retreat will feature small group workshops with me and Lynn, a private consultation with Lynn, and all of the amenities of Canyon Ranch, a luxury wellness destination. It's not just a spa. It's so much fun. So much fun. Everything that I teach is really about emotional management, handling worry when it shows up, but it is so focused on prevention. These are skills that every family needs to know so that we can get ahead of this thing and you can have wonderful joy and connection with your kids. Join us October 22nd through 24th. And there's a link in the show notes and on flusterclocks.com. For the moms listening to this who have a man in their life they're parenting with. There's only so much work that you can do. You can own 50% of your parenting dynamic when you're mm-hmm. co-parenting. Mm-hmm. So what do you think is a way that one parent can support the other in coming further along down this path of vulnerability with the kids? Is there something? I think from the get-go, it's really important to pay attention to the sort of that the way we still set it up early on in parenting. One of the things that was probably one of the most fascinating statistics that I have heard and one of the most helpful statistics that I've heard is that the rates of postpartum depression are virtually equal in moms and dads. We just don't call it postpartum depression in dads. And we attribute it to things in moms that you know, like hormones and birth and all that kind of stuff, which are valid, of course. But I think that the way that you can help in creating this is to really give value to the dad's ability to talk to their children in a vulnerable way by making it okay and to say very directly, you know, you have a lot to offer in terms of talking to our kids about sadness or worry or fear. And to even, if you're a mom, to even say, you know, I've talked to the kids about this, or I do talk to the kids about this. You have such a valuable perspective. Can I ask you to have a conversation with our kids about this and to share some things about you? Because it's so important for them to hear your story, to really just ask directly in a way that says to them, your perspective is really valuable. Let me ask you this, though, because you're describing a moment in time that's perhaps eight years after postpartum depression affected both parents or one parent. 
Mm-hmm. Right. When you're having that conversation with your child, mm-hmm. let's rewind and go mm-hmm. back. And how do you, as a couple going into becoming parents, acknowledge depression? I mean, depression happens a lot. I know a lot of dads in my friends' marriages who have suffered with depression and other issues. It is not uncommon at all. Mm-hmm. And it depends on whether or not the dad is willing to go get help or the dad develops other kinds of self-coping mechanisms, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. I mean, that's so common. Mm -hmm. I mean, the rate of that in households is over 50%, I would think. Yeah. And I think that one of the things that you can talk about as a couple is really looking at depression as disconnection. And one of the things that is enormously helpful, so if I'm working with a young couple or if I'm, you know, that they're expecting a child, I'm really clear with a dad. I tell them this. I say, you know, look, the adjustment that you make to parenthood and all the things that are asked of you and how hard it is to figure this out, there's a lot of information and a lot of conversations about becoming a parent that are very mom focused. And we forget to talk about what a huge adjustment this is going to be for you. So let's get ahead of this a little bit, because here's what's going to change for you. You're going to feel an enormous amount of emotional roller coastering. If you're in a heterosexual couple and a woman gives birth, she's not going to be very available to you in the way that you're used to her being available to you just because that postpartum period physically is intense. So you're going to feel a little isolated. You're going to feel a little detached. You're going to feel like you don't quite know what to do. And you're going to start thinking about your future. And you're going to have all those same feelings that uh, of sort of like, oh my gosh, they just handed me a baby. And we need to talk about those. And we need to recognize how different your life is going to be as well. And I, when I have that conversation, I can sort of see their shoulders soften a little bit. Oftentimes, people don't have conversations with young dads or new dads about that. And they think they're not supposed to feel this way, which is actually one of the things that gets moms into trouble is that everybody talks about how being a parent is the most amazing experience you've ever had. And you're never going to, you know, I can't even describe to you what it's going to feel like when that baby shows up. And oh my God, this is such an exciting time. And then when it happens and everybody has to make these huge adjustments, There's a lot of support and not enough support, but there's a lot more support giving to moms during that and not to dads. And so to be able to talk from a very early time in your parenting about connection, about how you're going to connect with your partner, how you're going to connect with your baby, setting that stage as early as possible is so important. Truly, we think we're so evolved in sort of the equality of parenting and all that kind of stuff. I'm telling you, I see it every day and we're not as evolved as we think we are. So being able to give dads and give moms permission to let connection happen is so, so important. Front-loading those conversations Mm -hmm. are so important because once a child comes into their lives, there's just not a lot of time to have those conversations. They happen so much less frequently. Yeah. And I think that, you know, for me, it's so much about normalizing. And I think where dads can get sort of left out of the conversation is that we don't normalize for them how hard it can be to be able to have these conversations and how different it's going to feel 
to have a conversation to your with your son that isn't about chin up, everybody loses, to give them the vocabulary and give them the permission. You know, one of the most powerful things that I say to dads is, what do you wish when you were his age, if I'm sitting there talking to, and I've got a family and I've got a little, you know, little anxious boy, if you were his age and you were feeling like he's feeling now, what do you wish that someone had said to you? And in particular, what would you have wanted to hear from your dad that would have made it okay for you to have these feelings? What do they say? Oh, well, sometimes they stare at me blankly, right? So they say, I don't know. And in my therapy, by the way, I don't know is an enormously helpful response because it shows me where the gap is so that I'm going to say, okay, so you didn't get that. You don't even know what to say. So let's talk about it. Let me help you come up with some words. But sometimes they say, I wish somebody had told me that it was okay that I felt this way, that it was normal to feel this way. I wish that somebody had made a little room for me to be able to feel sad or to feel scared. I wish they hadn't told me or given me the message that I wasn't really a strong boy if I had these feelings. I mean, they recognize how oftentimes how shut down they were with their feelings and how disconnected and alone they felt. A lot of times the dads look at me and, you know, they sort of stare at me and they say, I don't know, which means that nobody ever did that for them. And so we, we come up with a conversation. So let's say there is a dad mm-hmm. who has a five-year-old or a four-year-old where mm-hmm. conversations start to stick. Mm-hmm. What are some healthy ways that a dad could have a conversation about fear and worry with their child? If you were right there talking on their shoulder... Mm-hmm. What would you have them say? Well, in all honesty, it wouldn't be any different than what I would tell a mom to have a conversation about it, to say it's really normal for you to feel this way because you're stepping into something new and you don't know how it's going to go. This is feeling kind of overwhelming to you. And I get it because I can remember being your age and I can remember stepping into these situations It's okay for you to have these feelings, and now let's figure out how we're going to manage them. You know, I would have a dad say, look, this is something we need to do. We have to go get our shot, and it's okay for you to have these big feelings. Now let's talk about how we're going to manage them. How are we going to step into them? And to do all the things that I teach all parents, except give dads more permission to have that conversation instead of handing it over to their partner to have the conversation. And to say to a dad, you're going to feel uncomfortable having this conversation. This is going to feel strange to you if nobody ever had this conversation with you. And I will also tell them, here's what we, here's what we don't have to do. We don't have to tell them that they shouldn't feel this way. We don't have to give that reassurance like, you know, come on, you can handle it. Step in there. Let's go. Take the hit. We can have that conversation in which we say, just like I say with all parents, it's normal for you to have these feelings. Now, how are we going to handle them? What are we going to do to help you step into this? I just want them to normalize the feelings and make room for them. Because the more that we tell kids, any kids, that they're supposed to suppress their feelings, that they're not supposed to have them, that it's abnormal for them to have them. The more that they try and live up to this expectation that maybe a closed down dad, a depressed dad, see a shut down dad, a closed down dad isn't conveying to their kids, I have a lot of feelings inside of me that I'm not really good at expressing. That's not the message they're giving. 
That might be what's going on. The message they're giving is you shouldn't have these feelings because look, I don't. So how do we let dads, how do we give permission for dads to say, this is what goes on inside of me too. And sometimes I handle it well and sometimes I don't. But a shut down, disconnected dad is showing their children, you shouldn't have these feelings. A shut down, disconnected dad that gets explosive at times, that gets controlling at times, is also saying to their kids, feelings are scary, don't go near them. And that's the message that we want to make sure that is not getting conveyed because you're shut down. You're not normalizing the internal world of your child when you don't show them and talk to them and convey to them that it's normal. Shut down moms can do this too, but we're talking about dads today. But that's what shut down dads do. Or I've heard so many dads say to me, you know, I say, you know, the dad, I want the dad in. And the, the other parent might say, well, he doesn't want to come in because he says he's not going to share his personal life with strangers. I go, okay. He's not sharing his personal life with the people that are most intimately connected to him. So sharing his life with a stranger is not the issue I'm trying to get at. It's sharing a life with the people who depend on him and love him the most. That's what we're going for. I'm just the conduit here. But, you know, my job is not to have an intimate connection with this shut down dad. My job is to help him have an intimate connection with the people who need him the most. But it's that shutdown. I'm not sharing myself. That's where things are problematic. How are those New Year's resolutions going? Well, many are destined to fail. But lucky for you, here's one easy resolution idea that we gave you that we can all make and it will make your life easier. It'll be kinder to our planet and it will transform the way you do laundry in 2024. And that is switching to EarthBreeze. EarthBreeze looks like dryer sheets, but it's ultra concentrated laundry detergent and it couldn't be easier. You just throw a sheet in with your laundry in any temperature and you watch it dissolve in any wash cycle hot or cold. There's no measuring, there's no mess, there's no fuss, there's no wasteful plastic jug. EarthBreeze fights everyday stains and odors, giving you an amazing clean every time. The best part is you'll never run out again thanks to EarthBreeze flexible subscription that you can adjust, pause, or cancel at any time with no hidden fees or penalties. And you'll save a whopping 40% when you subscribe. Shipping's always free and it comes in a slim cardboard envelope that saves a ton of space. So switching to EarthBreeze won't only make laundry day easier for you, but it will also be easier on the planet. So help me make plastic jugs a thing of the past. And if EarthBreeze doesn't end up being the 2024 update of your dreams, you don't even have to return it. Just let them know it's not for you and you'll get a full refund, no questions asked. Get started with EarthBreeze and save 40%. Go to earthbreeze.com slash flusterclucks. That's earthbreeze.com slash flusterclucks for 40% off your subscription. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. So when you're a parent, you're going to have your fair share of big talks with your kids, right? About all sorts of big topics. One of those big talks should involve money. And Greenlight can help with that. Greenlight is a debit card and a money app that's made for families. It allows you to do instant money transfers. You can get real-time notifications of spending. You can manage chores. You can automate allowance. 
I know with my kids, we really wanted to help them see the cause and effect, right? If you spend money now, you're not going to have it later. If you earn money now and you save it, maybe you can put it towards some big purchase that you're looking forward to. This is called financial literacy, and it allows kids to build independence, to learn how money works, to make them better savers, better spenders. The Greenlight app also comes with an in-app financial literacy game. It's called Level Up, so that kids can build money confidence through videos, bite-sized challenges, mini games, and more. More than 6 million parents and kids use Greenlight to learn how to make responsible financial choices. So stop putting off the money talk and start putting your kids on the right path. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash fluster. That's greenlight.com slash fluster to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash fluster. So many people in that hypothetical dad's world see him as this conventionally masculine person, but a mental health professional recognizes that there is a huge price that person is paying Mm -hmm. and suffering just in a different way. Yeah. One of the things I wanted to ask you too is usually our listeners are sort of further along in this because Mm -hmm. they're here, they care, they're trying to improve the emotional literacy of their family. Mm -hmm. But I think that it's important to say that Showing up and having conversations around emotional literacy with your sons doesn't mean that your sons will end up like Fred Rogers is what I'm trying to say. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I think what you're trying to say is that, and I've heard this many times, is that there is this very strong message out there that if you raise an emotionally literate boy that means they're a wimp, that they are not strong. See, the problem is, is that when I am talking to these closed down dads, they equate strength with not showing who they are. And so when we say to dads, I want you to have this conversation with your child about these feelings, they'll be like, I don't want to raise a wimp. Now, if I talk about it more They're trying to offer protection to their child. They don't want their child to be vulnerable because they see vulnerable as weakness and, you know, being attacked and not fitting in. Parents really, really want their kids to fit in most of the time. They really do. They really want them. They don't want a lonely, isolated child. And with boys in particular, And with dads and boys in particular, they're worried that their child is not going to fit in to this culture that we've created. When I say to these dads, have these conversations with your kids and allow them to talk about their feelings and develop emotional literacy, they immediately pull back because they're like, well, then my kid's going to be attacked. My kid's not going to be able to survive in this world. It's a hard, hard thing to take that risk. It's a hard, hard thing to take that risk. And, and I think that it doesn't have to be all or nothing because, you know, we do want kids to be able to go out into the world and feel like they can protect themselves. And again, to know the difference between when you share something and when you don't share something. I think the word, if I had to pick one word that I really want to convey to dads in terms of 
staying connected and staying connected to their partners too, because this thing spirals into disconnection and it, it impacts marriages and in, impacts parenting. I think the word tenderness is really just such an important word that it's okay for you to be tender with your kids. You know, it's okay for you to show softness in that realm with your kids. And it doesn't mean that you are making them weak. You're actually teaching them a really, really important skill that's going to bolster their emotional management and bolster their mental health and bolster their ability to connect with other people. Loneliness and isolation and disconnection are at the root of so many of the struggles that we have as human beings. When I think of both men I'm related to and then male friends, you know, that I had in school that we've sort of grown up together. Mm -hmm. There's a joke that there are certain men who just between having a beer or a ball in their hands, that's sort of just what they do of Mm -hmm. how to connect with other men. Mm -hmm. But if you're a guy who knows how to really connect with other men outside of that, Mm -hmm. I didn't really honestly see that until I met your brother, who is my husband. I'd never seen men relate to each other and have such deep friendships and deep conversations the way he did. Mm -hmm. And it was a really beautiful thing to see. Mm -hmm. Clearly, I I chose a partner who who I think sort of gets this more than the average guy because that's what I was drawn to. Mm -hmm. But the thing that was so beautiful for me to see is I saw that he brought this to his other male friendships. Mm -hmm. And his friends met him here. And I see what it's like for adult men to really connect in their vulnerability and their strength. It makes me sad that I think it's kind of rare. It is rare. So I feel like the goal is not only how to protect your kids, how to raise strong kids, how to do all of these things, but but going in this direction has a very self-satisfying purpose as well. Right. Again, when we talk about disconnection and we talk about isolation and we talk about loneliness, we can talk about it in the context of fathers talking to their children, but also just men being able to have a place where they can connect to other people. And I know several incredibly gifted people in my field that this is their area of expertise. You know, this is what they, this is what they look at. This is what they examine. There was a book I read a long time ago called Man Enough. And it was by this really great therapist who since died, but it was really eye-opening for me because it talked about instead of being angry or instead of being disappointed or instead of instead of talking to men as if they don't measure up he was really talking about how much they need connection and how do we help them get that so i think it's true is that if you have a dad who is willing to take that risk and to model that for their kids and to talk to their kids about that you are giving your children particularly your boys an incredible gift because you're giving yourself an incredible gift If you're a mom listening to this and you're raising a boy, Mm -hmm. what are the key things that they should be thinking about? The mom raising a boy? To raise the boys who become these fathers, who show up in their vulnerability. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think, you know, I've I've got two of them. You do? 
I remember talking to um, talking to somebody and them say, asking me this question a long time ago, and I said, I said, my goal is to raise kind, sweet boys who can connect with other people, and I wanted them to be respectful. I wanted them to to get out of this role of sort of like we have to be this big tough boy. A, a little self-disclosure here, which you can all make some conclusions about. My father-in-law, who raised my husband, literally had physical contact with his grandsons twice, twice in their lives. That's right. I remember you telling me that your father-in-law only held your firstborn one time. So, you know, there was work that needed to be done. There was work that needed to be done. So we've worked really hard at that. My husband said to me when I found out that I was pregnant the first time, I don't want to have sons. I want to have girls. He was afraid of being a father to sons. And we've worked so, so hard on that. And look, it's a constant battle because it's there. But that's what we've really worked on is to be able to raise sweet, kind boys who are respectful and who are able to talk about what's going on inside of them. And, you know, I mean, again, it's, it's a work in progress for sure. I think a lot of us actually were afraid to raise boys because of the meta point that there's no, there's no cultural game plan everyone is on board with. None mm-hmm. of us know. I mean, we're, we're doing our best, but mm-hmm. to model raising the sons that we want, mm-hmm. This is new territory. We're in such a big transition culturally about this. It's a lot harder. Yeah. And that's what when I talk about these these young dads that I am meeting with, they're really working very hard in trying to get out of the legacy that was handed to them. The legacy that was handed to my husband was horrible about being a father. And I don't mean to disparage my father-in-law, but... You know, and I know from whence he came too, this is a generational thing, but it was horrible. And there was a lot of work that needed to be done. I think part of it, my husband came, became a father late in life. That was probably really helpful. We've talked about it a lot. We've worked on it a lot. And it's tricky territory, but so worth it. Oh my goodness. So worth it. Do you think that was too personal? No. Okay. Because of editing, our listeners don't know that this is the first episode that we recorded where we each burst into tears <laughs> throughout the show. I know. Yeah. It's it's uh we're like raw right now. Yeah. We're both we're both easy criers, but this is this is deep stuff. Yeah. We are really easy criers. <laughs> Right. The easy, yes. Yeah. Yeah. We referenced that in the other show. It's like there's easy writers, easy criers. It's deeply personal for, for all of us because we are trying to, like you say, make this huge cultural shift in a time that feels oh so emotionally intense, right? I heard this analogy so many times during the beginning of the pandemic that we're trying to build the airplane while the airplane is in the air. And I feel like for parenting for the last several years, totally not related to COVID, but we're trying to parent on a ship in which the ship is in the middle of a, 
you know, a hurricane. It's, it's hard. Yeah, it's very, very emotional. And what more do we, you know, what do we care about more than sort of providing to our partners and providing to our kids what they need to navigate this emotionally wrought world that we live in? That's a statement right there that there's work to do. There's always work to do. And it's okay that there's always work to do and that you're not going to bat a thousand. You're not going to get it right. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to say things that you wish you didn't say. Just work on connection. How do I connect and how do I make it okay for my kid to feel what they're feeling? How do I make that okay? How do we not pathologize it? How do we recognize it and how do we give them those skills they need to move forward? That's the message that I want dads to have. Being a human is tricky and messy. Well, your point, Mr. Rogers' point, our show's point, it reemphasizes over and over again that connection is everything. Connection is everything. And when we're talking about a shift that involves nearly half the world's population mm-hmm. of how to connect more deeply. Mm-hmm. This is life's work. Yes. This is life's work worthy of everyone. Yeah. This is the ultimate work in healing. Mm-hmm. It is. And the ultimate work in finding joy. Yeah. I just obviously can't resist the opportunity to bring up Tom Brady. Oh my God. <laughs> Thing. It's not like I'm saying Tom Brady is the best father, but you know, he probably is. I mean, he's definitely oh he's definitely the most handsome father. No, 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 no. Bear with me. Do you remember that during I don't know, do you remember? I talk as if you saw this. Like, remember everybody when we all watched the Tom versus Time documentary? Some of you probably didn't. Um, but there was a moment where his son came in and gave him a kiss. Yeah. And people went batshit about that about how inappropriate it was for his son to give him a kiss. That's terrible. Yeah, it was terrible. I'm not holding up Tom Brady as the paragon of convection. We know that he's totally obsessed with football. Wait, the paragon of convection? Connection. Oh. (laughs) Convection. Yeah. He has an air fryer. Yeah. (laughs) So join the Facebook group so that you can ask Lynn your question on an upcoming episode. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Fluster Clucks. Bye, Robin. Bye, Lynn. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy.